0: Welcome back to 10,000 Knows. Every now and then we like to pull an episode out of the archives that really struck a chord with our listeners when it came out, but still packs a wallop present day. Rather than run the risk that these gold nuggets of wisdom languish away in cyberspace, buried under our more recent and equally impressive guests, we like to serve up the occasional encore. Today is one of those days. Disregard any references to dates or times as they are no longer fresh, but do not fret. The ideas and themes that were covered in this conversation are like a fine wine. They get even better with age. Enjoy.
1: That's why you have to figure it out. You have got to get off your ass and figure out something else. You've gotta redefine what's happening in your life because nobody else is gonna do it. You cannot depend on your agent, your lawyer, your manager, your anything.
0: You've gotta do it. you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Hello and Welcome back to 10,000 No's. This is Matthew Del Negro, as you probably know. And if you are new to the podcast, welcome. You picked a great guest to join on, Henry Winkler. What a legend. Um, we are in a crazy time right now, at least as of this introduction recording, which is about a week before the episode will be released. Uh, It's a crazy time, coronavirus all around. First of all, a shout out to all of the medical professions, the uh, professions, professionals, the politicians, anybody out there on the front lines, anybody um, that has been affected directly by this, um, and everybody else who has really been inspiring me on social media, um, kind of firing me up and giving me a call to action to be more active. I feel like if you do follow me, you'll notice right now I have been quite active, um, just lining up interviews that are impromptu, putting them out, putting out solo episodes, just doing whatever I can to try to put some good into the world right now, some hope into the world. And Henry Winkler certainly does that. Now, this Conversation was recorded in 2019, November of 2019. Um, so it was recorded in a, a bit of a different time than we're dealing with right now. And yet so many of the things that we talked about and just Henry's personality and his essence um, still is is so relevant to what's happening here. And the conversation is still so relevant. And I'm glad to be able to bring something other than you know what the, what the current events are right now, um, but there are there are many things to reflect on. And at one point, you'll hear Henry talking about acting and his estimation of what it is, and basically saying that you know the artists need to uh, step up and and need to um, kind of reflect back uh, to audience members, what, what is going on with them and and reveal themselves in a way that is healing. And he said, you know, some people call that highfalutin. And um, he said, but really, that's that's what we're doing. We're holding up a mirror to society. And I actually think at this particular point, it's, it's not even just uh, through our art, but it is on social media, which is something that I've kind of, you know, certainly looked down on in the past. And uh, right now it's kind of linking the world. And so um, I'm feeling like, uh, I hope this conversation uh, makes you feel more connected. Uh, I certainly have so much respect for Henry Winkler and so much gratitude for him sitting down with me. And just overall, I mean, the first time I met him, he was at a a premiere of a, a Netflix comedy that I did called Huge in France. And my wife and I walked in and I didn't know he was going to be there. I, I walked in and I saw him, and I said, "Oh my God, it's Henry Winkler!" You know, uh, I got to go gush to him about Barry. I love Barry, and I had been binging it. And at the end of the the two episodes they screened, he came over to me and could not have been more kind and uh, just generous with his comments on my work on the show. And it was like he just made my night. And Made my week, and um, I reached out to him, and we kind of went back and forth for months before we actually sat down. But you'll hear it—you know—you you can't help but hear it in this conversation. He's 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 really uh, just a, a gentle soul, and and he's so open and honest, and uh, really there to pull people up. And what I love about him for, for, for this particular show, 10,000 knows, which is all about resilience and reframing and overcoming the odds is his story. And maybe some of you don't know it, but just of, of having dyslexia and feeling as a kid that he was an outsider and how he overcame it and, um, how he views himself and the work he's done on himself, uh, Really just an amazing guy. Um, you may have you know, been like me and you were introduced to him when he was the Fonz, Arthur Fonzarelli on Happy Days. Or maybe you know him now uh, from Barry um, where he just won an Emmy uh, recently or Arrested Development or all of the things that he's done. Just if you IMDB him and we'll put all these show links in the show notes and you can, you can see the body of work uh that that he has and it's it's just it's incredible and yet what I am struck by is just what a, a kind of normal guy that he he reveals himself to be and at one point uh apologies for this, but at one point his wife was was at his house when we were having this conversation and we kind of got interrupted and I left a little bit of it in there because it's just so funny there's a little, a little snippet and then I cut out of it and we cut to something else. So there might be a little jump in the, the topic. I I can't even remember if it, if it tracked or if we jumped to a new topic, but I wanted, I wanted to leave that in because, it, you know, if you're new to the show, the, the essence is really to, to leave it raw. And I wanted people to see the premise of the show is that no, no matter who you are, how famous you are, how many awards you've won, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. And um, that's kind of the point of it. And we're all just struggling to put it together. And certainly right now as as a, a humankind, we're all doing that. And um, I think Henry is is the perfect person to have on the show right now. So without further ado, here he is, Henry Winkler. First of all, thank you for doing this in the first place. A pleasure. And thank you for asking. You know,
1: you got to be invited in order to do, right? Well, you're... Otherwise, I would um, just be sitting here twiddling my thumbs, waiting uh, to be asked to do a
0: thousand no's or uh, 10,000 no's, which is a
1: whole other podcast.
0: Well, it's funny you say you'd be twiddling your thumbs because one of the things uh, I was just telling you, it's intimidating to sit down with you. Obviously, I know I've known your work since I was a kid, but in preparing to sit down with you, I did not realize the volume of your work. Yeah, that comes out of being
1: short, Jewish, and nervous because you never know, you know? And, and uh, so I love to do my work. I really appreciate it. And uh, there was no part that was uh, too stinky or uh, too small for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Actually, that's funny. I had something that I, I, you know, I've just told you. I'm going to put this down, but it's a specific quote, and I thought I'd ask, you know, bring it up at the end. Yeah, but it's kind of appropriate. So, Aaron Hayes, who did huge in France with me, who was at Children's Hospital. Yeah, I I love her. I texted her the other day. I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to sit down with it. Henry. Anything, you know, odd that I might, <laughs> you don't you know, want to ask him about." Yeah, and she said, "In our seventh season of Children's Hospital." Uh, we were standing around between takes. We were having a laugh. Right. And you just kind of paused and said, isn't it wonderful for us right now to be doing this? And we're going to look back on this moment in time and say how lucky we were to be doing this show with these people. And she said she didn't really think of it at the time because she didn't realize what eventually ended up being the truth was that that show was coming to an end. And she wondered were you always that appreciative of those moments and projects or did you develop it later? Always, always. Okay. So, and here's the thing. I did not say it on some projects.
1: I appreciated being there, but I was in the midst of some of the creme de la creme funny people in the industry. I was in the midst of the creme de la creme crazy uh, meta comedy um, uh, inventors, writers, producers. I'm going to tell you a, a, a secret, and this is true. I did seven years of um, Children's Hospital, I didn't understand 97% of the joke. <laughs> I once got yelled at because I said, "Wow, I'm in a wacky comedy in the middle of an interview." And someone took me aside and said, "No, you cannot say wacky. We are meta. We are meta comedy." <laughs> I didn't know what that meant either. But I said it and and but I'm not kidding. The jokes were so there was no logic and everybody seemed to be enjoying themselves, so I just went along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah, and I love them all. I mean, each one. Um, I and Rob Hubel, uh, who I adore, uh, asked me to officiate his wedding. So it really, I, I had so many great experiences yeah. from that. Yeah, such a great. It's great when you find a family like and that, and the family's family because everybody brought their children. Everybody's children came to visit. We had parties and all the children were invited. They were not like nighttime adult parties. yeah It was really a family. it just happened to be funnier than most. yeah
0: so so actually let's talk about family. you grew up in Manhattan
1: yes um, you I had a sister. I have a sister she's four years older than I am. okay uh, two very short German parents. Uh, who at 74, I am now just um, calming my dislike down for. For your parents? Yeah. W- tell me about that. Oh, they were just rude and they were severe. And I know that they were doing the best they can. They moved from their country to another country, learned another language, uh, started a business. All I appreciate all of that. Just... Um, they were, uh, severe, severe Germans.
0: Now toward everyone, you didn't like how they treated everyone or no, also how my, they treated My friends
1: you? liked my parents, you know, I never quite understood that. But I, um, promised that I would be a different parent when I grew up.
0: How, in what way? What were, were they, did you not feel supported?
1: That's right. I, uh... As a parent, I made it my business to listen, uh, to compromise, to include, to, um, and I mean, when they, they, I included them in their um, consequences. They helped make up their consequences. You know, what did you think was fair for what you, what what just went down? Uh, Their um, curfews. They were included in everything. And did they come up with what you thought to be appropriate? If they didn't, I said no. And then they went back to the drawing board. And then when they did, then I said, that's perfect. I'm I'm right with you. And how was that different when you were a kid with your parents? I couldn't watch TV for most of my high school career because they thought that it distracted from subjects I wasn't going to learn anyway because I'm dyslexic. And if I didn't turn the TV off at the proper time, the TV that we had in the beginning in the, in the 50s and early 60s had tubes. So they could feel the top of the television and they could feel the heat and know that I had been watching TV or I would turn it off in time and it would cool down and they couldn't feel huh.
0: my, my lie. Can't feel the iPad these days. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. you can't check with your kids. Um, so how did that dyslexia, you brought it up, my my mom is a retired special ed teacher. So I know, you know, many Very intelligent, capable people who have gone on to do incredible things, but struggled in school. That relationship to education, what was that like? Did you feel like an outsider? Did it mess with your self-esteem?
1: It messes with your self-esteem. You feel like an outsider. And what I realized is, you know, my partner and I, we're writing our 35th novel and we write outsiders our hero is an outsider in every um, in every uh, series that we write, uh, and I we just came to that realization like two or three weeks ago. You know, it seemed normal to us.
0: I was just talking to someone the other day, saying a lot of uh, actors that I know that either they moved around as kids or they were you know maybe military families, yeah, right. and they felt like outsiders. And I find that a lot that most actors when you Get to talking to them. Feel there is some element of feeling outside of the mix, and that's maybe the desire that gets yeah, and wanting us. to get in. Yeah,
1: yeah. But like a good actor is, we paint with um, emotion and modulation and humor. You know. Uh, you know, acting is. Uh, you look at so many people on television and they are, they, there is a television way of acting. There's a lot of, in the beginning of the scenes, there's a lot of, hey, hey, you? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, uh, <laughs> and it, I, it, listen, I watch it, it, you know, I'm entertained, but it really is true that it kind of synthesized down to naturalism without natural feeling, yeah, you know? Um, but actors, are good actors, I, you know, we have, you and I have a, a mutual acquaintance we just talked about this morning, uh, Sam Rockwell, who is like a chameleon. Yeah. He literally transforms. I mean, I've seen him on stage. I've seen him in, you know,
0: miniseries, series, movies, He's just the deal. Yeah, he's and my friend and I, when we uh, drove away from that uh, premiere last night, the Clint Eastwood uh, Richard Jewell film, we said his his special weapon, in a way, is that he can be completely dropped in and real and authentic, and still be loose and funny. Some people it, yeah, but it, it's, have a, one it's an other. art form, you know.
1: Like Jack Nicholson is one of my is one of my faves because there is no distance between his soul and the characters he plays. He's able to integrate his, his, hisness into the job he does. And it just, it's just amazing Yeah. To well, me. D- can you appreciate that you have that
0: as well, or no. do you not see it? For I
1: am. It, it, the honest truth is, I am getting there. I'm a late bloomer. Yeah, I was um, a character. The 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 character that I, you know, introduced the, myself to the world with. Thank God, I changed my voice. And my body a little bit, because they completely unlocked the rest of my imagination after that, if I tried to be any kind of straight man, i was my goose was cooked. I looked at myself, and it was vomitous huh. it was, It made me nauseous. I pushed, and i was off kilter but when i could grab onto a uh, a choice in a character i was able then to fly
0: yeah well knowing you now um and knowing more of your recent work it's kind of like the one of the most amazing uh hustles that your career did you're you know, my introduction to you as a kid was the Fonz. Sure, and I feel like it's such a—you—you you were just the Fonz. That's—that's yeah. who you were. Of
1: Cher and called yeah. me because she used to put on famous um, ice uh, roller skating parties, and she called and she wanted to talk to me. And I said, "Oh no, uh, I'm so happy you called because I adore you," and uh, but it's me. And she said, no, 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 you don't sound like the (laughs) Fonz. I said, yeah, no, 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 as a character I play and I could talk like him right now. You know, hey, Cher, how you doing? uh, I'd like to strap on skates with you. And and she went, oh, oh, you're different. You know, and that I remember that is a great uh, compliment.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. So- But, but if we, if we take you back further in time before that, as a kid, did you know you wanted to do this? Like, did, did. I did. I had no plan B.
1: This was plan A. How old were you? I was uh, seven. Really? Yeah. I was seven. And I literally had no other idea in my mind, which is not a great idea because when Happy Days ended, I still had a production company. Uh, I had uh, an office at Paramount. I had a desk. I had an assistant. And I sat in my office. And for the first time in 10 years, I had not a clue on what to do next. I was right in front of my eyes, petrifying. I was not only petrified, but I was becoming petrified wood. I was becoming inactive. I was overwhelmed and in psychic pain. Because when you've got a reason, when you've got a a thing, when you're hungry, when you want, you eat through brick. Your your ambition is at its height. When you don't know, you are then rudderless. It hurts your brain. Or it did me. It, it hurt me. I was, and then I was just smart enough not to do anything until I could figure out what to do. Then my lawyer uh, called me and he said, you know, I'm gonna start a production company for you. I said, I can't do that. I'm dyslexic, I'm stupid. I don't know how to do that. I know how to do the acting part. I don't know how to do that. That's money. That's, uh, that's sell. I don't know anything. He said, no, you'll learn. And I met a, a bunch of people who became my partner. Um, uh, they were writers. So I was hooked up with them And then finally, I met a man named John Rich, who was a director. Um, He he died a few years ago. Very idiosyncratic personality, really talented, but really mean. And we sold MacGyver. It was our first show. Then we sold uh, an English professor who was blind, played by Jeffrey Tambor. He was unbelievable. Fantastic. Mr. Sunshine ran for 13 over and out. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. That was my first writer's room. You know, um, uh, writers, uh, uh, on Wednesday, you show it to the producers. If you do Monday through Friday, you rehearse a show. Wednesday night, after you've rehearsed all day, you've rehearsed part of Monday, Tuesday, now Wednesday, you show it to the producers, and this is what we've got as a show. And then they rewrite that night. And they go to a room, and they have the worst uh, Chinese food, mostly Chinese food. I don't know why, but it's true. Cartons upon cartons. And they start to break the script down. I'm telling you, it is an honor to be in that room. There are men and women who are paid $10,000 for the night to come in and just pitch lines. As everybody else is going through the script, they pitch a line that is so funny that you, you, you spit out your Chinese food. And I'm not kidding. These guys, and they are like geniuses. Um, Lowell Gans has a partner, Babalu Mandel. Babalu Mandel uh, is a one-line guy, uh, aside from a writer. And he pitches, just throws them out all day long. These one lines come to him like, I don't know, like magic golden thoughts in the... In the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and you know his light, uh, the, the his his forehead. You know, you hear a ding and boom, a line comes, and um, these men are, are and women are magnificent. But to watch a a script be reconstructed in one night
0: is something, something. And did you? Through that whole process, did you gradually, over time, start to get over that feeling that you weren't enough, or you weren't smart, or you weren't, you know, you didn't know about much? Did 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 doing it? Did the doing yeah, actually yeah, I undo know. some that's of that? That's uh, a
1: good question. All right, so the doing, I realized right in uh, in the doing what I could do, I was good at casting. I was good, even though her reading was so hard, I was good at, um, I I knew where problems were in a script. I was good with auditioning um, when I could read with an actor or give them a thought. Uh, I was good with the crew, you know, motivating them to just, yes, we were working 18 hours a day and yes, we're all tired, but, Your best is yet to come. (laughs) So I realized what I could do selling. I got to be a good seller. Um, You know, I was a good storyteller in the room at the network. And other stuff I left to other people, you know. But, you know, you go on a trip and there you are. You're now not in your house, but you're in Venice and you're still short and you still feel the way you feel about yourself. That, that takes another kind of work. That takes a a courage to look yourself in the face and go, oh my God, you are an asshole in certain areas and maybe you'll want to work on that. Yeah. Yeah then it takes another kind of courage to actually work on that because people are always frightened. If I change, even if it's for the good, how will I be accepted? Will my family, will my friends, will my, will the world still see me and like the new me? Maybe I should just hang out with the old me and, you know,
0: Th- that's one of the things I think of with your, I would call it, I don't know if you would call it meteoric success, With Happy Days being kind of a zeitgeist show right. and that particular role being right. just everywhere. I would imagine you ran for, what, 10 seasons? Right. I would imagine there's a certain part of that petrifying quality you talked about is because, well- this is being accepted, this is being lauded. And now and now what, and what if I screw up, you know- Screw it up. It, it puts a fear. And what
1: about if the next thing I do is doesn't have the same impact? Yeah. Then, oh, well, he's a flash in the pan, which was a secret fear of mine to be a flash in the pan. Then as a person, I could never relax. I was never myself because I never thought myself was enough. Neil Simon, the Neil Simon, invited me and Stacy to dinner. We drove to their house. And I was insane. I was so nervous that I could have been Literally, mahogany—a piece of mahogany furniture. Walking around, this is the, this is the typewriter you wrote. Uh, 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 Unbelievable! I, Odd Couple. I, I saw the Odd Couple on Broadway. You wrote it right here on this. (gasps) Your dog, your dog. The dog is lying right in front of the the kitchen door. They're bringing out the food. Is he not in the way? the dog probably lies there all the time smoking cigarette after cigarette in his house the ashtray looks like a like a like a dingy bar at 3 in the morning i have smoked so many cigarettes <laughs> the warmth that i was greeted with as i walked through the door into the house and he the Now, cu- cut to the end of the evening. He put his arm around me. Neil Simon put his arm around me like he was a man There was such a space between me and him. You could have built a small home.
0: <laughs> because you were scared?
1: To no, me. because he now was, what the <laughs> hell was just at my dining room table? What was that? And uh, he said to me, the last thing he said to me is he went, well, have a good life. And as I walked to the door, I walked to my car. I looked over the car roof towards Stacy, and I said, I guess I blew that. And she said, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh,
0: yes.
1: (laughs) That was horrible. She said, I don't know who you became, but that sure was not Henry. And, but it went on um, uh, years later, uh, 10 years later, I got the opportunity to read a Neil Simon script version four. With a group of other actors sitting in a circle down at the Mark Taper Forum. Now so that was a big lesson because I almost talked my way out of it. Because I thought, Deal Simon, I can't read very well off the page. I'm reading it out loud for him. Oh, there's probably this. You know, there were other actors. Oh. Then I thought, you gotta fly. Got to step off the precipice. Neil Simon has asked you to read his play. Shut up and go and read the play. Then I go down there, and Dustin Hoffman walks in. And Neil Simon gets up and says, I am so sorry, Dustin. There's a mistake. You were called here for no reason. I thought he was called because he was going to read my part. <laughs> And he literally sent Neil Simon I mean, uh, Dustin Hoffman home. I thought, okay, I'm still here. I made Neil Simon laugh during the reading. I thought, oh my God, we all go home. Okay. A few months later, we're called. We're going to do it as the millennium play at the Mark Taper Forum. Do you want to do it? (gasps) yes. I'm gonna be in a Neil Simon play. I've always thought, (gasps) Neil Simon wrote more plays than Shakespeare. I'm asked to be in his play. We rehearse. And then I realized, I am going to leave the rehearsal hall and go onto the set they've built It's getting too real. I went to John Rando, the director, and I said, John, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna find another actor. He's gonna memorize the lines. I'm gonna tell him what I've done. I'm gonna take him through the blocking. (laughs) and Give him the role. (laughs) Give him the role because (laughs) I am so petrified to leave this rehearsal hall. He said, shut up. Get your bag and walk across the street, and then we ran for nine years, uh, nine nine months on Broadway. Nine months. Wow. Yeah, I mean, people all over the country who said, "I was there. I went to see you. We took a picture together." Was that was John Ritter in that? John cast? Ritter, but uh, John Ritter played. Um. Ed Herman's part, Ed Herman, the late Ed, Ed Herman, who played uh, Roosevelt, you know, on, uh, uh, he was in it uh, in the, at the Mark Taper Forum.
0: And did he have to leave? the? I, the either he yeah, had to or, leave or
1: he chose to leave. Yeah. Fran, Frances Conroy was in it, and she chose not to go to Broadway. She is some actress.
0: Oh, I loved her in... Uh... Six Feet Under was... Oh, my God.
1: But to see her up close... Yeah. And see her say the same lines every single day, and every day you're riveted. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. She was amazing. And uh, she chose not to go to Broadway. And I think uh, Penny Fuller or Jan, the late Jan Maxwell, uh, took her part. Holy moly.
0: But how do you... you know, you're, you're talking about the the fear. This is in your adult life. Yes. And, and then overcoming it. Yes. But what, you know, I read, and I don't know if this is true. Everything you find on the internet is not always true. I read that you didn't walk with your high school class. So you didn't That's graduate true. with them. I did and not. And yet you went to Emerson college. Yes. And then you went to Yale yes. for your MFA, you know. All of the, I stumbled How into did you each. get like, after struggling so much in high school, how do you get to college? And
1: I got, I applied to 28 colleges. I got into two and one of them was Emerson college. And they said yes, and then I went there.
0: So there was a drive, obviously, 28 colleges. I mean, you had a drive. Well, my
1: parents, I mean, to, you know, I went to a private boys' school. I wore a blue blazer and gray slacks, a tie every day. You did not not go to college. It was humiliating. Humiliating not to get in. Humiliating to have to apply. I would have to ask for um, two or three applications from each school because I messed up each time. Um, you with know, the writing. With and the, and the writing or the spelling or the... I put the my date where my zip code was. I You know, it was horrible. So I went to... And then I don't know where I got the nerve to uh, apply to the Yale School of Drama.
0: Is it true that you, you know, again... I don't know if these are fables or yeah. what, that, that you, you didn't, you forgot your Shakespeare monologue oh, is, no, and that you made was, one up. Was that true? Yes, or that, that was, was not at Yale.
1: That was the TCGs, the Theater Communications Group. And they would be, they were the feeder um, uh, casting uh, operation for all of the um, uh, regional theaters in the country. So all the theaters came, a representative from all the theaters from Louisville, Kentucky and Milwaukee and Minneapolis and Yale and, and you know, just on and on. Stratford and Connecticut would all come and watch these actors who were chosen um, through audition to uh, see if they wanted the, uh, us to work at their
0: company. This is after you graduated? After from the- I
1: graduated from Yale. Yale then said, don't you go anywhere because you're going to stay here with us. I thought, oh, that's a nice compliment. That was Robert Brewstein, a very famous uh, drama turg, a historian, a columnist, a reviewer, and the dean of the Yale Drama School. Had a pipe that he would rub on the both sides of his nose, because I guess the skin oil from his nose uh, really worked on the uh, on the burr, of the the you know on the wood of the of the bowl.
0: <laughs> I wish people could see your face right now as you're doing this. <laughs> and
1: um, so I went to the TCGs and I did a a modern uh, monologue a play written by David Epstein, who was a writer at the Yale program when I was an actor. They told me that you came this way or something like that in prison, did the uh, the monologue. And then I did Launce and the dog and I forgot it. And I made it up. Mid-monologue, you forgot it. Mid-monologue. And total I, nightmare. Total, total night- nightmare and- oh. I when I made it up, I did not make it up in iambic pentameter. <laughs> I, I just said anything about this man Lawrence and his dog that came to my mind, <laughs> and I got four offers. I got yeah. uh, Louisville and Milwaukee, and well, um, you were
0: incredibly in the moment. I you know? was in the moment. <laughs> wow, was Wait. that. So the head experience, I mean, that's, uh, you know, for anybody who's who's listening, that's not an actor may, may be able to imagine it, but that's, it's like a nightmare. But once you caught on and you kind of caught fire, where you, did you feel like you were flying or did it feel nightmarish all the way through? Nightmarish all
1: the way through. Yeah. Nightmarish all the way through because it is a monologue that so many people do. And all of these people representing theaters all over the country know their Shakespeare. This is, Shakespeare is not my forte. I I never really did. I played uh, young Seward in uh, Macbeth where um uh Macbeth crushed me uh, at the the end of act 3 or something and I would have to lie on the stage dead for too <laughs> damn long. You know, and I thought, "Oh my god, I want to move my hands so bad." <sighs> maybe if he's yelling over there, (laughs) I I could move it a little. (laughs) Oh God. It was horrible.
0: But you went back and did a lot of plays at Yale rep during the run of happy days, right? Was that on hiatus? No, 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 no.
1: I went back before I got happy days. I went back. Um, and, uh, I was. Uh, I did uh, The Seven Deadly Sins, uh, Bertolt Brecht's Seven Deadly Sins, and my acting partner was Carmen de Lavalade, who was my dance teacher at Yale. She was the prima ballerina for um, Alvin Ailey's group before Judith Jameson. Wow. Still a statuesque, Goddess, uh, Carmen de Lavalade. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, and we did story theater together, which is um, there are no sets, very little costume. You pull your, if I am drinking water, I merely pull a glass wrap my hand around the glass, feel the glass full of water and take it out of the air and then just drink, um, you know, through mime. it, it was uh, an amazing thing. And I had to be a reindeer. And this statuesque prima ballerina is also a reindeer. This was a very big lesson for me. I said, how can I be a reindeer? If you are a reindeer, I'm not a reindeer. I am a warthog. (laughs) She said, every reindeer is different. Your reindeer will come out of your body. And I I don't know why, but that stuck with me. And it's one of the things that I tell young actors as a metaphor. It doesn't matter what you think it's coming out of your body and therefore it is wonderful.
0: It's unique to you. It's unique to you. Yeah. I'm pausing because I'm kind of rifling through a lot of your performances that I've loved and thinking about how specific they are and how they have, there's an essence there that when I met you, there's a warmth that that you had in person, and a generosity that is in the those roles. Just thinking of you bringing your yourself, your well, essence. To. The, my the
1: the latest thing now is. Um, Barry. Oh God, I love you on that show. And they, thank you. And they wrote, they told me this, um, Bill Hader and Alec Berg told me this. They wrote him mean and really harsh and dark. And I just played him, you know, he was a little rowdy in the beginning and, um, but I played him as I saw him and they went, oh, yeah, we could we could write that too. He could be mean and 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 dark, and he could also be uh, warm and uh, supportive in you know certain cases.
0: Yeah, isn't it amazing hearing you? Uh, I consider you a, a, a legend. You may not in your own view of yourself, but I, I think oh. of you that way. And and I'm hearing you say the same things that I. I, I mean, huge in France, which. I love that role. I almost did not go on that audition because it was written as a 30 year old blonde haired, blue eyed, beach bum, you know, gym going young Brad Pitt. Got and it. And I thought, there's, I thought, well, I'm going to go all I the way it. over across town. Yeah. C- it's never going to, never going to be. Okay, so get what this. made you go? So then what, what? You know what made what I could made, tell you. What made you go? I could tell you. I had gone through a really dark period. I had finished Goliath, which was up until that time, maybe my famous, yeah. my my favorite role and, and experience yet. I love it. And that I story. had uh about eight months of unemployment. Oh right. I was in a not great place God, to the point I know, where I, I, know that I literally had a cast on my hand because I punched a wall and I broke have my hand. I a key to that place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I broke my yeah. hand, literally couldn't have a baseball catch with my right. son because I broke my hand gotcha. punching a wall. It's really, you know, yeah. the, the the height of my pride, you know, when you're a parent, then you do that. Absolutely. Um, and, and so I was in a dark place and the thing I hooked into with that Jason Allen Ross character that I thought maybe other people wouldn't. They would just. It was really funny, as you know. So I, I thought everybody may see the humor, right? But I actually saw, you know, not not in a proud way, but it kind of hit close to home in in a way that was almost exposing. And so the the situations were so ridiculous, and it was I thought, you know, laugh out loud funny the situations they gave me. But underneath it is this really sad, what desperate. got you, what got you? That's
1: why you're working on it. You figured that out. What got you to out go. of your house, into your car? You just said, I don't want to go there, all the way there. Blonde, blue-eyed, beach bum, not me.
0: What got you in your car? Part of it was... Hey, beggars can't be choosers. You got to go get. You got to go right. get a job. I know but, that well. But part of it was also, you know, well, yeah, likely ninety nine point nine percent. You're probably you, you know you can't control that part of it, right? But you really hook into this guy's situation. Mm-hmm. Maybe at least for these ten minutes, you can fully lean into that feeling wow. that you've kind of. You know, you, you know that is of- a
1: really important thing for uh, to act actors listen. Do you know who listens to your podcast?
0: Yeah, actors
1: listen, and surprised- what you just said is a really important thing because this uh, the fons they wanted a tall Italian. They got a short Jew with long hair down on my shoulders. Now I didn't have, I didn't know yet. I was still naive. But I didn't know, oh, well, they want a tall Italian. Don't go in. But yeah. we both had exactly the same feeling. They don't want me. They want a completely other. They don't know what they want is the, is the key. Yeah. And you go in and bring your best A game,
0: and it's you they want. Yeah. That is the lesson. I tell you, it's one of the big lessons of, of this show, this podcast, it was originally 10,000 no's because of all the no's I've received. Sure. What I've come to realize is that I have probably given myself as many, maybe more no's than the world has given me. Totally understand that. And in hearing you talk, it sounds like- Oh my God. Similar situation. 1979, I did, uh, I played Scrooge in
1: the American Christmas Carol for ABC. And I thought to myself, I can't do this. I mean, uh, Alistair Sims uh, played Scrooge that I've watched now growing up in, uh, in, the, in the movie. You, you, what are you, crazy? You think you're going to do this? And I, I literally, I literally became butter. I walked in a circle in my, um, in my living room, talking myself out of doing it and literally packaged myself as Lando Lakes, <laughs> and then I said again, "Are you doing this? Because just shut up. If you're an actor, just get in and do this now. Go to 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 Toronto and shoot this thing. One of the favorite things I, I've ever done because it was like a mountain I climbed. Yeah." Now, am I good? I don't know, but I sure know that I loved that I did it and not talk my well, way out of it.
0: yeah, I one of my first acting teachers in New York, Terry Schreiber, he uh, you know his thing that he taught Ed Norton for a long time like I right. think is incredible and and Terry used to say the roles that you're scared of are the roles that you should probably. Attack because you have so much energy. uh, Right. You have so much energy holding you back from them, so much fear that if you can break through that, you pour yourself into it in a way that you. I never thought of that. Yeah. I always thought that was interesting because something that you naturally have an affinity toward, you go, you know, I'm not, it, it doesn't cost you anything. Right. Whereas the ones that you're scared of, they cost you something. And the audience then almost feels that. What it I, cost yeah, you. I, well, yeah, because, um, you know, I
1: this is so weird. I just did the actor studio, you know, inside the actor's studio. Now, I've never been invited before. I don't know how long it was on with James Lipton yeah. and his dyed beard, but I had never been <laughs> invited to do it. And I always thought when I would watch it, uh, I did as much work is the person now up there, what? And I couldn't get invited. So this new uh, iteration on uh, Ovation uh, channel, uh, I'm, I'm asked to do it. And um, I couldn't believe it. And now all of a sudden I say at the end of it, we actors illuminate the world, we literally are a mirror and hold up who we are to the audience so they can see, ah, we're all the same. And this is a situation I know very well. And look at that. It's all doable. Theater is that. Does that make any sense? my Yeah, that?
0: no, that's a, it. it I completely agree. And
1: I got a review who said, I was pretty good, pretty interesting. A little highfalutin, but I guess uh, true. And I thought, highfalutin? I just said what the 5,000 years of theater is that I learned, that I wrote down in my book that I now know is the truth. And I thought, oh my God, uh,
0: highfalutin is probably not the... Yeah, I think people could say, oh, well, that sounds self-important. Oh, so you're the ones that are dictating society. No, but you're just, I I look at it much in the same way that you're basically opening your vest and saying, come look at all these idiosyncrasies, look at all these vulnerabilities and And maybe you don't want to do this in front of all of the people you know, but I'm going to do this so you can see it and you can kind of live this story by yeah, live through it that's through, right through me that, yeah. that, that's
1: It's what theater is. You know, in South Africa, uh uh during apartheid, theater was the only place where they could literally uh revolt. They wrote political drama uh, and people would come to the theater and go oh my god that is true that's what's happening in our government this is horrible and they would uh, you couldn't do it on tv you couldn't do it on radio you couldn't do it in the movies you couldn't do it on a street corner you could do it in the theater not highfalutin.
0: No, that's reminding me of a book I've read. God, I haven't thought about this in a long time. In college, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Right. And they had, they had. Uh, I, I believe, maybe I'm re- remembering it wrong, but they had all of Shakespeare's works yes. locked up. Yes. Nobody could. Right. Nobody. The society couldn't see that right. there was no love. Everybody could have everybody. It was this utopia, and the main character was saying, "No, no, this can't be right. There's got to be something more." Right. And it's interesting to hear it in that way that they locked up Shakespeare, and and th- you know, uh, unbelievable.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's always the artists. You know, it, it's always the artists. If our, um, if if the government of the United States. Keeps going the way it's going. We're in for, all I think about is uh, my grandchildren will not know the country that I grew up believing in. It will completely unravel and become something else, but I don't know, but it's always the artists first. the, The artists are the troublemakers. Yeah, expressing. Always the first ones to go.
0: Let me ask you, when you did, and full disclosure, I have not seen this film, Lords of Flatbush. Yes. I'm just, I'm curious. Okay. You, a young, you and Stallone. Right. Pre-Happy Days, pre rock Yes, right. Did you have any sense at that time, or did anybody around the two of you have any sense of what would become of your- No, not at all.
1: We had no trailers. We used sound blankets, you know, moving blankets they put around furniture. Yeah. We put that around ourselves to keep us warm as we waited um, uh, for them to set up the camera. Uh, no money. Uh, they had fired a guy, and I heard about it as I was going to commercial auditions in New York for A&P um, supermarkets. Supermarkets. Yeah. And- uh, um, Sanka uh, decaffeinated coffee. <laughs> and I called my agent, and I said, get me in. And it was the only time that my career intersected with Richard Gere, because he was fired and I was hired as Butchie. But I'll tell you what I did know. I knew that I was in the presence of greatness with uh, Sly Stallone.
0: You did? Yeah. What was it what was it about him?
1: Smart, funny, very funny, dry writer, um, passionate. Uh, you know, talk like this, he really, you know, he was very gross. <laughs> but under the grossness was this single mindedness, this laser beam. Oh my gosh. Then he came to California. I was already out here. I was on the show. His car broke down on Sunset Boulevard with his first wife, Sasha, and their Bull Mastiff. The biggest dog I've ever seen in my life.
0: Butkus, that dog that was Uh, in in Rocky. Yeah. there's a famous story about him. Yeah.
1: And I went and picked them all up. The dog almost did not fit in my car. And I drove him to the apartment that he rented on El Camino in West Hollywood. And uh, he then said to me, he said, "Uh, you know, I wrote this script. uh, You wanna take a look at it? And I sold it to ABC. And then ABC said, this is great. We're gonna get a new writer. I went to Sly, I said, here's the money. They wanna get a new writer. He said, Henry. Don't let them do this to me. I went back to ABC. I said, here's your money back. I need the script back. Nothing has been done. I need it back. I really do. Please. And I think only because I was really important on ABC um, as the Fonz, did they even think about it? But I wasn't joking. I said, no, 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 no one is taking any of your money. Here's all your money back. I have to give this back to the writer. And I went back and I called Sly and I said, "Sly, you got the script back." He said, "Oh my god, thank you." And then he wrote out of that script Rocky. Holy, honestly? Shit. Honestly, and I don't think I have left out a detail. I don't think
0: I left out a detail. I think that's exactly that was the bleeder of Bayonne script that he had, or what it was about, it was a, or he had gone. No, and it was the know, second. It was the or-
1: second film he made. What and I, I, I don't re- remember the title, but it, the title of the script I sold was the title was this the second film he made, not Rocky Two, but the one in between, or yeah, you know,
0: oh yeah, that that's. Yeah. His, his, that whole story, which I've, I've seen him, you know, in interviews talk about there is is just such a great, you know, you talk about 10,000 knows what a great lesson of holding on to something. If you know, if you know in your center
1: that you're on the right path, that this is the right thing, uh, you got to just keep going. And I'm not talking about wanting to be right. There is a difference, you know, um, They say, uh, you know, when you meet the one that you love, you'll know in your stomach. I never understood what the hell that meant. But I do know when you know you're right in your stomach, you just, that's, you're you're in the right, you're in the right zone. You're in the place you're supposed to be.
0: So did you have that feeling for yourself, despite all of the fear, all of the anxiety, all of the, everything you talked about when you went to Neil Simon's house, at your core, somewhere deep down there, was there this belief, even from that young age, this is what I'm meant to do? Yes. And that's the way
1: I pick scripts. Uh, You know, reading is hard. And uh, I just did a a little independent movie. I just came back yesterday morning from uh, Ottawa. Uh, Gerard uh, Carmichael. I I maybe messed up his first name. It's not Gerard. It is Gerard. Ger, Gerard. Whatever it is. This unbelievable first time director. He's a stand up comic. He had a TV show on called The Carmichael Show. Is uh, a genius. Um, and I've completely lost the plot.
0: You were saying uh, you pick scripts that way by ah. gut feeling.
1: So I read this script, it is two guys at the beginning of the script, they are in a really tense situation with each other, two friends. And you read the script and it's these two guys and it's their story. And you're reading and you're turning the pages. And then they offered me a small role. And I said, yes, immediately. Then after that, my agency said, here's a script, two guys, you can have your choice of either one. The script is called Why the name, the title of the script is the name of these two characters in this script. I read 26 pages. I put the script down. I called my agent. I said, I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't care about what they're talking about. I don't understand where it could go. This is not for me. Especially after reading Mister Carmichael, uh, Mister Carmichael's um, uh, project, and thinking, "Oh, I can't wait to find out what they do next!" And oh my God, I, I, I have the same thought they do. It was so smart. Just uh, my tummy knows, you know. Yeah, your tummy knows more than your head.
0: I had an entrepreneur, a female entrepreneur whose her company's, I don't know, $500 million now, poo this woman, Susie Batisse. Her whole thing is about alive ideas. And it was amazing to sit down with her. She basically- She was it, on your show? She was on the show, okay. yeah. And and just incredibly intuitive. And it was that same kind of thing. Her Her assessment of that would have been exactly what you did. That other one, it doesn't matter if you're the title character. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's- all the right things. It would have been an amazing yeah, opportunity. But it wouldn't have been if you didn't, you know, what you're saying and what she would say. And I think I would agree is it there's something off with it. It's not going to no. It's like for all the wrong reasons. I'm telling you,
1: I did a pilot years ago, uh, thing called Monty. And it was also, that was a big lesson in my life because it was so funny. Rush Limbaugh, has a gay daughter who comes home from college with her girlfriend. And it was so funny. And I thought, oh my God, this is so controversial. This will never get on. I can't do it. (coughs) Then I read it again. It was so funny. I couldn't believe it. Oh no, this is too controversial. I put it away. Then I read it again. It was so funny I had to say yes, because you know when do you get this doesn't come along every day?" Rush Limbaugh with a gay daughter. And we did it for NBC. NBC bought it, and then they said no. somebody at G at, at G uh, GE Jeez. must have said no, not on my channel." And uh, they gave me back uh, the script. Jeffrey Katzenberg said, we're going to sell this. We're going to sell this. And he sold it to, to um, Fox. And now um, Jimmy Burroughs comes on to direct. I'm thinking, okay, this is great. But instead of a gay daughter, David Schwimmer comes on. And he is my son who went to study law and wants to be a chef. And I here's my lesson. If they bastardize or they start to break it down in such a degree that you no longer recognize the project you said yes to in the beginning, no matter how painful it is, go home. And did you go home? I did, you did get not out? go home. You did it. I did not. I went home when they canceled in the middle of the sixth episode of the new version yeah. of Monty. I went home. But I knew. But anyway, Jack Black had, um, we brought him back because he was so funny. He, uh, he had like four lines and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was a, uh, an under five. What year was this? 1986, maybe. Wow. Maybe later. Maybe I don't remember. I don't care. <laughs> maybe it was horrible. Then we bought a dog. We bought a dog and behind my back, they named it Monty. I resented that dog all its life. I just couldn't call the dog Who Monty. Who named it Monty? I don't know. I think maybe my wife. <laughs> I hated the dog. It, and not only that, but also the dog didn't play ball. It was a uh, a King Charles Cavalier, which are bred to merely sit on your lap. Yeah. And that's
0: it. <laughs> So speaking of sitting on your lap or sitting around waiting for things to happen, you yeah. didn't do that. No. You're the, and you talked about it briefly before, but one of the biggest shocks in preparing to sit down with you, I had no idea that you had anything to do with MacGyver. MacGyver was a big show when I was a kid. No idea you had anything to do. How, now you were executive producer, I'm, but was it okay. just under your company?
1: I got paid... Not only in money, but also in a production company, Paramount ABC. ABC gave me two or three on-the-air commitments, meaning if I brought them a show that they liked, we would go right from don't pass go, give me $200, and they put it
0: on the air. Picked up the first season or whatever.
1: And Daniel was the executive at ABC. In the room, she said yes to MacGyver. I kept on saying, no, 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 no. You want us to come back? She said, I, z- I just said yes. I couldn't get it in my mind that they said yes in the room. And then we did it for seven years. Were you very involved? Very creatively? involved. You were? Yeah. I was there every day. Uh, I We edited sometimes. Uh, it was on Monday night. And we edited uh, through the night on Sunday and delivered what they call a wet print because it was right off the right off the console.
0: What was the hook? Because I watched that as a kid. I think it was on either after or before Monday Night Football. I can't right. remember. I remember always. Yeah, after Monday Night and Football, and it kept
1: the audience.
0: Yeah, and it, and and I liked it as a kid. I never would equate you. What was it about to you? I loved
1: that he was like Zorro, who is my favorite of the, all those um, heroes. He, when you couldn't go to the army, when you couldn't go to the police, when you couldn't go to the fire department, you went to MacGyver. And he uh, figured it out. And we went through a lot of different twists and turns and eventually came up with what was on the air. And now uh, it's back again. And because uh, my lawyer was so good with the contract, they had to take me. But they now um, uh, like it when I come for lunch, and uh, I edit uh, the performances in uh, in the shows. When That's so great.
0: It's funny because I do, I th- I still use MacGyver as a reference when I say I'm, my life sometimes feels like MacGyver. I'm putting things together with yes. chewing, chewing gum and tinfoil. Yes, I feel lo- like that was his it's thing. It's in the vernacular. Yeah, that was always his. And what else? Shoes, polo, Listerine. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. As I mentioned in the intro, at this point, we had a little sidebar with Henry's very funny wife, Stacy, which I've opted to edit out for privacy reasons. But the gist of the conversation is worth mentioning. We discussed the craziness and up and down qualities of being married to an actor. And it was not only hysterical to hear her take on it, but eye-opening to hear that it still exists just as much at Henry's level of stardom, the uncertainty. I left that tiny piece about the Listerine because I thought it'd not only give you a chuckle, but it comments on the premise of this show that no matter who you are, you still have to deal with the minutia of life. Okay. Let's get back to the conversation. The Be- writing of the books came because
1: there was a hole in my acting career. All, you know, there are lulls, as we know, of acting um, no matter who you are. You, there's the ebb and the flow. I was in the ebb. I was deep, deep, deep in the ebb. Yeah. I couldn't find the exit to the ebb. And somebody suggested I write children's books about my dyslexia. And because of the way that I, your self-image, I thought I was stupid, couldn't do it. I met Lynn Oliver and where there's a will, there is a way. And something that I thought I could never do, something I thought I shouldn't do, something I thought there is no way I'm going to be good at, we're writing our 35th novel together right now. That's unbelievable.
0: So what is it then, for the listeners, how do you, when you're in that funk, Right.
1: Does it seem like it's never going to end? Yes. So that's why you have to figure it out. You have got to get off your ass and figure out something else. You've got to redefine what's happening in your life because nobody else is going to do it. You cannot depend on your agent, your lawyer, your manager, your anything. You've got to do it. Um, uh, Ron Howard always says that he loves that I say, I take my pick and my axe and I mine the system every day. I go out there and I, I look for um, work I don't want to be idle and i sure don't want them to wait around until that phone rings cuz sometimes the 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 wire phrase way before the the bell rings
0: <laughs> i know i know that well i mean that you know what you're describing is really the, you got to like, do it what happened with this podcast yeah it's you got to do it yeah um fly fishing
1: <gasps> i love it so much i mean i just love it it's like a washing machine for your brain. It's beautiful. It's, um, it's graceful. It's exciting. It's delicious. It's one of the great sounds of all time to be and hear that water rush by you, either in a boat or standing in it.
0: How old were you when you started?
1: Uh, I started in the 80s. Uh, Skip Brittenham, the third, my lawyer, uh, took uh, Stacy and I to the Smith River. We went down for five days down the Smith River, and uh, without uh, no pun intended, I was hooked. Huh. Oh my god, I can't it's, wait! It's
0: funny for a city boy. I don't yeah. think of fly fishing as the first thing, so maybe that is the allure. That oh, I I got my rod. Yeah, I got my reel. Did they capture it and a river runs through it the way you
1: see it? Not no? the same, you know. I don't want to. It's like I never wanted to 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 look at the um, like a Playboy magazine. You know, if you can't have it and you can't like be right there in, in the middle with it, uh, um, uh, the 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 outdoors and the. I don't want to see it on film.
0: Yeah, I just want to ask you a little bit because I I love what you're doing so much on it, and I, I don't know if it's going another season. I don't know what the deal what, is. Barry? But Barry
1: Barry starts again uh, March. Uh, we we ended in December, and I have to wait until March of 2020. <gasps> oh, the experience is great. The experience is. Everything that you want an experience like this to be. The people, the material, the the leaders on the set, the character, the response. It is so unbelievably fulfilling.
0: Yeah, love it. Congratulations, by the way, on the, Emmy, on the Thank Emmy and the Emmy nomination. But yeah. um it's right there, you can
1: see it on the dining room table.
0: Where
1: is it? See between the 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 uh, the two. Um,
0: oh! Oh! Yeah, there it is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. I don't use it as a doorstop. Very nice. Yeah. Um The word "no" means what to you? How do well, you,
1: The word "no," when a woman says no to you, means no. When the world says no you hear yes.
0: When everything's going sideways or when you're- oh, in the- when you're a parent
1: and you say no, you better stick to your word because they will find your weakness and they will go through you like mercury. They will go to the other side and they will destroy you if you don't keep your word. That's when no is no. No, you cannot have dessert if you have no dinner. Well, come on, she should have some cake. No, if you don't have dinner, there is no dessert. That's when no is no.
0: Non-negotiable.
1: Non-negotiable.
0: When you're in the abyss, when everything's going sideways, do you have a mantra that keeps you from, you know, jumping off a cliff?
1: Yes. I look in the mirror and I say, Oh,
0: just shut the fuck up and get on with it. If you could give your younger self advice, what age would you intervene and what would the advice
1: be? I would intervene as early as I could and say, all of the worry, all of that worry that you are doing now, that you are quaking in your boots about, it, it has no calories for your life. It does nothing for your life. The only time I like when my children are a little bit afraid is when it came to um, not getting in the car with another kid that drank or not getting involved with drugs. We were really lucky to negotiate just around that. Now, the kids drank. I'm sure they did. They had to kiss us goodnight, you know, all through high school when they came in. Give us a kiss goodnight. Thank you. Bye. And then finally, Max, our youngest, said, I'm not kissing you. You're smelling
0: me. I went, hey, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I could sit here with you all day, but I, I, I am so, so appreciative. Listeners, yeah, a, I'm sure, a are great so appreciative of, of, of you Taking your time and sitting down. I'm Thank sorry you. I've hounded you for so many. I feel like I've hounded no, you. For no, no, no. We we did this until we got it. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, well, I really, really appreciate yeah. it. You're you're a, a great, kind, generous soul. You're an incredible artist, Thanks. and I really appreciate Thank you. it. Thank you. What a nice thing to say.
1: What we do here is go back, back, back,
0: back, back, back. Okay, top three takeaways. You know I hate limiting these. There are about 39 of them in this conversation, but that's what we do here, only three. You can always email into the show, info at 10,000nos.com if you want to tell me what your top takeaway was in case I missed it. For now, here's what I got. Number one, this seemed so appropriate given that many of us have been on pause with our lives right now because of this quarantine, having a purpose versus drifting. When
1: happy days ended, I still had a production company. Uh, I had uh, an office at Paramount. I had a desk, I had an assistant. And I sat in my office. And for the first time in 10 years, I had not a clue on what to do next.
0: Not only did Henry talk about turning into petrified wood out of fear of being a flash in the pan, but just that sense that it was easier, he was happier when he had a purpose and a directive. Maybe I mention it right now because I'm feeling grateful for this podcast as my TV show was sidelined for the moment. This gives me something to pour myself into, something that can maybe help someone and make a difference in some way. So. Find something or someone that gets you up in the morning looking to serve. Number two, you can't know if you're going to be good at something until you try it.
1: I realized right in uh, in doing what I could do. That's it.
0: You got to do it. Fall down, screw up, learn. It's the only way. I feel like I hammer this one into you guys over and over on this show because it's true. You just got to do it. It's that simple. And a lot of times you'll discover, as Henry did, that you're actually better at the thing than you imagined because your fear of trying it was causing you to create some nightmare scenario of failure in your head. Maybe the more macro view of this is that one aspect of you, like being dyslexic, does not have to define you. It's not the disability as much as your view of the disability that's holding you back. So just do it. Number three, Henry said this stuck with him, and I think there's a reason for that. It could possibly be the most important takeaway of the entire conversation. Owning your unique gifts and contributions, even if you think someone else is beautiful and you're just a warthog, as he said he felt. (laughs) She said, every
1: reindeer is different. Your reindeer will come out of your body. And I I don't know why, but that stuck with me. And it's one of the things that I tell young actors.
0: Very simple, you are enough. And that is enough of me. This episode is over, go in peace. Can't thank Henry Winkler enough for gracing us with his presence. Thank you all for listening. Check out the links in our show notes if you want to dive deeper into Henry, buy his children's books, find out about similar past guests of the show. You have no idea how much your feedback and reviews mean to me and the show. If you like what you heard, please take a screenshot of your phone, share it on social media, share it with your friends, get the word out. This show is a labor of love, so if you want to shop for cool 10,000 Nose hats and t-shirts in our online store, all proceeds go toward keeping this podcast rolling. There is also a link for that. I don't want to pat my own back, but everyone tells me that they are the softest t-shirts they've ever worn. I'm just saying. If you follow me on social media, you'll get uh, announcements and promo videos of who's next. And if you email us at info at 10,000nos.com, you can be added to our mailing list or give us guest suggestions. If you haven't yet, please rate, review and subscribe to 10,000nos on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out. Most important, stay safe, stay inspired and don't give up hope, even though times are a little rough right now. This, too, shall pass. See you next week.